0: Father, we want to thank you that you are a God who speaks to us. Uh, We pray our hearts be drawn to you, uh, that we might understand what it means to be yours and what that's going to look like in our lives. Help us to understand uh, what you want from us. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, One of the few things that I enjoy about the internet, uh, there are lots of things not to enjoy, uh, lots of things to be distracted by, but one of the things I most enjoy about the internet are top ten lists. Uh, you know, I like them when there are other places too. Uh, sometimes they're just amusing. Uh, top 10 reasons why Homer Simpson should be the next president. Uh, of the US, uh, you know, the kind of thing that David Letterman, uh, did when he was still going on the, the late show. Uh, sometimes, uh, the top ten lists are just full of weird, interesting and fascinating facts about the world that you just kind of never thought that you needed to think about. But now that they've said it, you're like, oh, I wonder what are the ten, top ten deepest places in the world? You know, I really want to know now. Um, sometimes they're actually helpful <laughs> and they're full of good advice, you know, the top 10 ways to keep your house tidy or to make work more manageable or something. Now, I must say that those kind of top 10 lists are not the be all and end all. After all, there's always a number 11 and a number 12, which you know, are perfectly good things, uh, which could have made the less. And a lot of time they're just subjective, But the list I want to present to you today is not subjective at all. It's not my opinion at all. It's God's opinion. And it's not a top ten, it's a top five. It's God's top five. And so uh, today I want to present to you the top five best things to do now you're a Christian. Five things that are essential to put in place in your life as a Christian and I thought it would be a really good way to end our term together, where we've been grappling with the issue of, of what is a Christian and what's not a Christian. What is it, What does a Christian look like, who they are, and what's not one? You know, a Christian is not someone who is sinless. Uh, some people would like to think that Christians are the goody-two-shoes, they're more moral than everyone else, but that's not true. We're not people who are sinless, we still struggle with that. Uh, nor is a Christian someone who... Uh, goes through particular religious rituals. Uh, that's not it. Uh, they might happen to, but that's not what makes them a Christian. Uh, nor is a Christian someone who was just born into a family or a particular culture or background. That's not what makes someone a Christian. Rather, a Christian is someone who has a relationship with God because they trust Jesus, who is the only way to God. Uh, Jesus died as a sacrifice for sins, and so so we can make a fresh start with God. And uh, what's really exciting is we've seen several people over the past year do that, make a fresh start with God, which is really, really terrific. Uh, and uh, it's an amazing thing we should all praise God for, because the light's been switched on. And... What's even cooler is that's what we say we're in the business of doing, making disciples who make disciples of Jesus and people are becoming disciples of Jesus. It's really, really fantastic. And maybe that's you. I i I think I see some of you this morning. Uh, Maybe you've come to trust Jesus for the first time. You never understood it before and even heard it before. And you've come to Jesus. Uh, Maybe you're someone who's made a recommitment to him. Uh, for some reason, you'd wandered off into the wilderness, but now, now he's called you back and you, you get it and you, you've come back and embraced him again. Or, or perhaps over this term, you, you know, you've been a Christian all, all along, and, but it's just been a great reminder and encouragement of the truths that you already know. But whichever one of those things you are, this list is for you. The top five best things to do now that you're a Christian. Now, unlike other of these sorts of lists, I'm not going to rank them from the worst to the best or from the least important to the most important. I'm simply taking them in the order they come to us in what really is one of the most tremendous and encouraging and helpful passages in the Bible on the subject, where the writer lays out these five things, which if you do them, uh, will keep you safe from the schemes of the evil one. And uh, they will fill you with such joy and confidence that will mean that you actually make it to the end as a Christian, following Jesus always. The list comes from Hebrews chapter 10, uh, and it's just in that paragraph from verse 19 to 25, which is where we're going to spend most of our time today, just on those uh, four or five sentences, uh, that one paragraph. And you can tell what the five things are. Um, because they all start with the words, let us. Uh, not lettuce as in salad, uh, which iceberg's the only good one, but uh, you might disagree with me on that. But let us. It's an exhortation for us all to do these things together. And, and I want to say all of them flow right out from being connected with Jesus. Uh, he's the one who's loved us. He's the one who saved us. And because of that, he's given us great confidence of where we stand with God. And you can see that in verse 19 there. Uh, Therefore, brothers, he says, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, open to us through the curtain, which is his body. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, then let us do all the things he's going to say to do, which we'll get to. But see what it says, Jesus gives us his supreme confidence to know God and to approach God without fear, without doubt, and with great boldness. How? By personally opening up a new way to God. In fact, that's what the book of Hebrews has largely been explaining up to this point. It says that Jesus gives us this confidence because he's done away with the old covenant, the old way, the old deal, the old way of relating to God, which was really all about performance and ritual and it never worked because no one kept it up they couldn't they couldn't perform enough and the rituals became empty but the old deal was all about outward signs things like priests and temples and sacrifices and animals and things that you had to do to even stand a possible chance of maybe knowing god and this is saying Jesus has done away with it all. In fact, verse 1 of chapter 10 tells us that the old covenant, the law of Moses, was only ever a shadow. It was a shadow of the things that were to come, not the reality. It was just a shine. I mean, shadows kind of look like, well, your shadow kind of looks like you, depending on the angle of the sun. You may suddenly become very tall or very short and squat, um, you know, well, that looks like me anyway. But um, they, uh, uh, but they're 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 two dimensional, three dimensional. They've got no details. They're just a sort of image, a pointer to the way. Uh, and uh, and that's what the Old Testament was for us—a shadow pointing to what was coming, the real thing. And because it was a shadow, it could never give us confidence because it never really worked. It never took away any sins like it said it was doing and it it couldn't give us access to God. It never worked because it didn't fundamentally change anything. And so you had to keep repeating the rituals because you kept sinning. The whole thing, the whole setup proved that it didn't work. Now I mean, just think about one example. Uh, Think about the whole architecture of the temple uh that was in Jerusalem. Uh because that's where God was supposed to dwell. And if you're not aware, maybe you haven't thought about this, uh, there were different sections uh, to the temple of God in Jerusalem. There was there was the outer court, which was kind of open to everyone, and then there was a court to which only the Jews could go into. I mean it was their temple after all. Uh, but inside that was a was a court where only the men could go and the women weren't allowed. Uh, and then there was inside that uh, a, a room uh, of the sanctuary where only the priests could go, the holy place where there was the altar and the famous Jewish you know, seven-pronged lampstand. And then there was this very huge thick curtain uh, that was hanging there that separated another tiny little room that really only held a box. Uh, it was called the most holy place or the holy of holies. And that was the place where God was really supposed to live. In fact, that was his seat on top of the Ark of the Covenant. You know, Raiders of the Lost Ark between the cherubim. That's where God sat. It's called um, the seat of meeting. Um, And that's where he dwelt. And only the high priest could go in there. And he could only go in once a year. And he could only go in after he'd made lots of sacrifices First, for himself, for his own sins, uh, and and then for the sins of the entire nation, because he was going to defile this place uh, if he didn't otherwise. And when he went in, he sprinkled everything with blood all around. In fact, in the in Leviticus, it says he has to make atonement for the most holy place because Israel was defiling it just by its existence. Which is really bizarre, and it's re- everything's covered in blood. It's really gory stuff. But the reason for all the gore was because blood and death is God's punishment for sin in God's world. Sin requires death. um, Death is the wage of sin. And so at one level, just the architecture of the temple meant that it was a place of hope and joy uh, because God dwelt with his people. Here he is living amongst us. But on the other hand, it meant that you lived in fear because it was an imposing Reminder that you couldn't ever come close to God. Everything about it said, keep out, not welcome, you can't come in. Why? Because you're a sinner and sin requires your death. But that's also why it was only ever a shadow of something better because it highlighted the problem, but it never properly dealt with it. Temples, Priests, animal sacrifices never make up for sin. As as if you could buy God off somehow by doing outward acts. So it's a bit like having chicken pox. I don't know. Anyone had chicken pox? Most people. Anyone's kids have had chicken pox yet? Or are you still waiting for that fun day? <laughs> Shingles. Uh, so, uh, you've got the chicken pox. You've got the marks, the sores. And so what you do is you think, well, you know what, I can fix this. And you go to your Avon lady and you get some foundation and mascara and you just kind of, you know, powder up and cover all over the sores. Uh, and you walk out pretending you're okay and that you're not sick. Has it, has it fixed anything? No. No. You're actually still sick and you're going to infect everyone else. Or imagine owning an old rust bucket of a car. I got given one for free the other day. It was so so awesome. I paid 36 bucks in transfer fees. There you go. Uh, it's rusting and all exciting and, you know, the seat kind of tips to one side. Anyway, but you, you, you get this rust bucket and, and you give it a paint job. Uh, and so it looks good on the outside, but underneath it's still just a dodgy death trap. But then Jesus turns up and he doesn't come and smear fresh paint on and, and powder us up. You know, he, he does away with the shadows and he brings the reality. How does he do that? He does it by dying in our place, by being the one true sacrifice which really did pay for and really did take away our sins. And because he paid, we don't have to. If we trust him, our sins are forgiven, taken away, forgotten and gone. That's how powerful the sacrifice of Jesus is. And, and that's why he says we can have confidence because it doesn't, it doesn't rely on us. We can have unshakable, outstanding, outrageous confidence. So verse 19, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place where no one was allowed before, you can go there with confidence by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way that he is open to us through the curtain. Actually, not not the big curtain that he the curtain which is his body. And it's interesting, when Jesus died, according to Matthew's uh, biography of Jesus, the curtain in the temple was actually ripped into at that very moment. Uh, it fell open and fell to the floor because the way is open now to God. The way right into the most holy place, into the presence of God. Not the shadowy room in the temple, but into the real presence of God in a confident, eternal, loving fellowship with our creator. No longer is God's presence tucked away with great warning signs and roadblocks to ensure that you cannot come near the ways open. But that brings us to our list. See, once you've got that, once you've got access, what's next? What do you do now? Well, that's what God wants to give us. The top five best things to do once you know that Jesus has opened the way. And so you ready? Here we go. Number one. Well, that's how they do it on the top 10 list anyway. Uh, number one. Draw near to God. You see there in verse 22? Since we have this boldness, this confidence through Jesus, verse 22, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith. Draw near to God. The way is open, so come in and enjoy the relationship. Uh, come right on in. It's an amazing blessing because Jesus Christ is our confidence. We actually get to call the holy God, the holy judge of the world, the, the king who's on the throne of heaven. We get to call him our father. We get to call him Dad. Uh, he's, he's daddy in heaven, He's, he's uh, and because he's our dad now, we don't have to hold back with him. Draw near in your heart, draw near in your mind, draw near in your spirit. And you might think, well, what does that mean? What does that look like? How, how do you draw near to God? What, what does that involve? Well, <clears throat> it's more than just having doctrinal precision about things. Although, uh, doctrine and getting doctrine right is, is vitally important. Uh, knowing the truth really matters. But you can know all the facts in the world about God, be not, not be anywhere near Him. Right? You can know lots of important truths and not, not, not embrace them wholeheartedly yourself. I mean, even the devil and his minions, they, they know about God. They know all sorts of things about God and what He's like. But they shudder in fear, as they rightly should. Drawing near to God is about building a, a real, deep and satisfying relationship with God. But how does that happen? You might think that sounds a bit mystical, and does it just occur? No. Well, it happens through all sorts of means. It happens as you allow your mind to be renewed and transformed by God, as as you meditate on His Word. That's partly how it happens. It it happens as you as you. Uh, bring your deepest concerns and issues and life to, to God in prayer. It happens as you stop and and give Him thanks and praise and uh, for all the blessings that you receive from Him. It happens as you reflect on how you're going as a Christian, and as you think through what it means to live for God. You know, both in your long term plans and and in each moment. It happens as you say to God, what do you want me to do with my life and my days, God? It happens as you're mindful of God, as you reflect on his love for you and on his ways of being his and of his presence with you to cheer and to guide as that hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness Says. I not want to say that relationship with God really only grows in all those things when I mean, you can do the activities and not grow in a relationship, right? It, it grows through all those things if you're willing to be completely open and honest with God in them. Which is exactly why he says to draw near with sincerity of heart. You don't have to pretend with God. You, know, you don't have to impress him by being something other than what you are. I mean you can't anyway. <laughs> it's about being real with him. He knows the real you. You know, putting on a mask isn't gonna help you have a proper relationship with God. You may as well drop the mask and stop pretending he sees through it anyway. But it's also why he says to do it with full assurance. Because you might think, well, if I'm really open and honest with God about how I'm feeling and how I'm going and about life and and about what's really happening inside here. He's going to reject me. He's not going to like it uh, because it's not all sunshine and light. Of course it's not sunshine and light because you know what? You're a human being, right? And life can be miserable at times and we're always conflicted. Uh, there may even be some real darkness in here, right? Some bitterness and anger. Life's often tough. We're, we're all weak and we're all fragile, at least in some areas. Uh, there's, a, there's a chink in our armor somewhere, We've all got our struggles and pain. None of us have got it all worked out. And maybe you're here and you even struggle with things like doubt. And you're thinking, well, I'm not even sure I'm a real Christian anymore. And if Jesus really has done enough, and, and or you struggle with some sin, and you're just like, what do I do about it? I can't seem to get rid of it. But you know what? We, we're all struggling in some way with those things. In fact, That's why Jesus came for us, right? God's got you. He's got you. And so number one, draw near to God. Honestly, openly, with confidence, and draw near to God. Number two, doggedly persevere in your hope and faith right to the end. That's the second thing to do. That's in verse 23 there. So let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess, for he who promised is faithful. God's going to fulfill his word. So hang on. I mean, what does the world have to offer that's better than what Jesus offers? What could give you more joy and hope and confidence in life than Jesus? Nothing. People, things will promise it, but they can't deliver. And so, don't lose that. Don't, don't turn from him. Hold on to him. I, I, I love how he uses the word unswervingly. You've got to hold on unswervingly to your hope. Anyone here uh, on the motorways down the M5, down Hume Highway to Canberra, or uh, regularly, uh, you're on a motorway. Uh, what things might make you swerve? Wombats, yeah, on the road. Okay, animals, yeah, so unexpected things. Uh It might be an accident or a, a fallen tree or something as well might make you swerve. But, but, the, you know, the animal, you just, it comes out and you're like, ah! <laughs> um, why else might you swerve? Daydream or sleep, you know, if you're nodding off kind of thing and just thinking stuff and you're not concentrating, right? Well, you should have got more sleep than the night before. <laughs> but anyway... Got to keep your eyes on the road. Um, what else might make you swerve? Noisy children in the back. You're turning around. stop that. Yeah, kind of thing, yeah. Any else? Ice. There you go. You lose control because of something. I mean, that's that's a hard one, yeah. Yeah, well, or the other sort of ice. I think that's what they're into. Uh, <laughs> don't do drugs, kids. Don't do drugs. Anyway, uh, um, what else? Car failures? Car failures? Yep. okay. Well, I mean, that's that's difficult. But I, I reckon other drivers. Ca- getting cut in on, right? They just pull in front of you and like, whoa, and just re- instinctively react. And you know what I think the biggest one for me is? Distractions on the side of the road. Oh, there's a cloud over there. Oh, or a landmark. Pretty girl. they you know, kind of uh, mangoes, $10 for a tray. You know, one kilometre of the road, or where, 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 you know, kind of thing. Uh, or, you know, man in a clown suit. Uh, <laughs> uh, you just look away. All those things might make you swerve in a car, and it's exactly the same as a Christian in your hope. There are all sorts of obstacles and distractions which we can take your attention off of Jesus, right, and off the way you're going. I mean, Jesus himself gave a bunch of different examples of the kind of things that destroy Christian faith uh, and trust in his parable of the soils. He, these are some of the things he mentioned. He mentioned persecution, right, opposition, the opposition you can face for being Christian, being disliked, overlooked, or even actively abused and mistreated because you belong to Christ. I mean, at the end of the chapter, he says that's what the guys he's writing to have gone through, right? They've been, They've had their property confiscated. Some of them have been arrested. Right? They've done it tough. I mean, they've got it tougher than we've ever had it. They could be physically violated and even killed. Um, But when those kind of things happen, it's very tempting, isn't it, to duck your head, pretend you're not one of those people, uh, or even just walk away from the faith. Uh, And so, you know, persecution could cause you to swerve off the road. And Jesus talks about then the, the cares and worries of life. You know, all the stresses that we have about relationships, uh, about mortgages and bills, about parenting, uh, about our children and how they're going, about, about washing machines breaking down. Uh, they, they can overwhelm us and take our eyes off Jesus because we just become fixated on, on the problem. Right? When I was, uh, and so we swerve. Uh, When I was doing my motorbike licence, uh, one of the things they insist on is that if if there's a pothole coming up and you notice it, the one thing you must not do is look at it. If you look at the pothole on a motorbike, you will drive into it. If you look at the road just beyond the pothole... I mean, it's not you're unaware it's there, it's not like it's now suddenly magically healed over, but you will instinctively swerve around it and, and be on track. But, but, you know, those things can overwhelm us and just take our eyes off Jesus and make us swerve. Then then, then Jesus talks about the pleasures of life. They can make us swerve, you know, the, the pleasant distractions that just tug our hearts, the, be it the distraction of good times, or the good things that we're dreaming about, the daydreaming maybe, um, or the more sinister temptations that we feel inside to sin and and reject God's ways. All those things can make us swerve and swerve hard and maybe even run us right off the road into a ditch and bring our Christian walk to a tragic and dramatic end. Now you can't stop the obstacles from being there. Uh, You can't stop there being distractions on the side of the road but you can determine to keep your eyes on Jesus and not be forced off the road by them you've got to keep your eyes on the prize and the more in fact you draw near to God that first thing and put those things into his hands the less likely they're going to be to derail you Hold unswervingly to your hope. No matter what you're offered to turn from him, no matter what you're threatened with if you stay with him, no matter what other things seem to loom larger than him right now, stick with Jesus. You've got to determine now, Jesus is mine, I am his, and nothing's going to get in the way. So draw near to God, number one. Persevere in your faith, number two. Now both those things, mind you, are very God-focused, aren't they? Uh, They're about building and maintaining a good and deep relationship with with God. The other three, three, four, and five, are all about actually other Christians. Uh, One of the things about being saved by Jesus uh, is that he's not just in the business of fixing something between you and God, which he's definitely in that business. Of course, he does that. But he's also in the process giving us another tremendous blessing that is, we have a whole new family to belong to uh, and be part of. His people and now our people. His family is now our family, are the believers. And the last three things are all to do about engaging rightly and properly and well with his family. So, number three. Make sure you're helping other Christians love and serve Jesus and stay on track. Uh, you see that in verse 24. Let us consider then how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Being a Christian is challenging at times. Uh, I'm not the only one, I take it, facing all those obstacles and distractions. We, we all are. Uh, and because of that, we need each other. Uh, and so he says we've got to be there for each other, particularly be there in helping each other to love God and to do the right thing and to forgive and be kind and not be bitter and to take on the fruit of the spirit of gentleness and faith. And ah. <laughs> Most of the time, this job of spurring each other on towards love and good deeds, I think that's a really joyful and uplifting thing to do. Uh, for ourselves as well as for the other person, as we we ask each other how we 're going as a believer and do life together and kind of talk about what the challenges and obstacles are and as we solve them together and pray together and face them together, but sometimes it means uh, a hard conversation uh, it 's interesting he uses the image of a spur we 've got to spur each other on um, what 's a spur? Something that hurts, yeah, yeah, the back of the cowboy boots, jab it into the horse's ribs, you know, get it going, although I don't think this guy lived in the Wild West. Uh, you know, uh, yeah, a spur, it's a, a thorn in the ground that you tread on it and you quickly get off, right? Uh, I think he had in mind a goad, a long stick with a pointy bit on the end that you jab the oxen with, right, to get them going and to keep them on the right track. Which which I'm sure, if you're an oxen, isn't very comfortable. (laughs) Sometimes we need those conversations. But mind you, having said that, those kind of conversations only work if you have the relationship in the first place and, and when they know that it comes from a place of care and concern and love for them. I mean, lots of us can offer helpful advice to other people and you're doing that wrong and da 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 da, da and just be critical, right? Maybe you need a spur to shut your mouth and you know, kind of uh, be a bit kinder, but we've got to do the gentle and, and the strong sometimes as we spur each other on to love and good deeds together in relationship. Number four <laughs> it's connected. It's not a hard one to understand make sure you're in church and fully involved. Although he puts it negatively in verse 25. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Church, I mean this gathering, lots of good gatherings of church, is not just a chance to get what I get privately with God, it's now, it's a chance for me to serve and worship God by serving and loving his people. And, and the only way that we're going to build those kind of quality, strong relationships is with time. Uh, I do marriage preparation with lots of people. And one of the things that people say they want in relationships and, and know how they feel loved uh, is when they have quality time. I mean, who likes quality time with their loved ones and family and stuff like that? And who, who wishes they had more quality time? Anyone, Cheryl down here does. Oh, the rest of you, well, whatever. Uh, go and always leave your family behind. Then. Yeah. Uh, everyone wants quality time, right? Um, it's where you're in it together and stuff. But the thing I say to them, uh, is, frankly, you only get quality time if you have quantity time, right? If you're away and working every hour of the day and you know, away on business trips all the time in a marriage um, and you come back and think, well, you know, this one night we're going to have together is going to be magical and we'll be reunited and stars will be in our eyes and uh, you know, all the rest. Um, no, what ends up happening, you no, know, is you have a big fight when, when you get back together. So you only get quality time if you have quantity time. Believers gathering together is incredibly important. And that's, I know that's really challenging in a busy world with our busy lives and so many activities on and demands. Uh, but perhaps God's telling us that if we're busy, or maybe we're just being lazy, that perhaps we need to reprioritise a few things and that the week schedule has to change. Um, being with God's people isn't an optional extra. We talked about a bonfire the other week, you know, you can go to a bonfire and what does every kid wanna do? Have their own private one. They pull the stick out and walk off into the dark somewhere and they grab it and pff, it goes out. And that's the same for us. We're to be there for each other. We've got to be here to for each other gathering together in our large fellowships, which is what Sunday church is, uh, or in our small fellowships, which is what our, our small group network is through the week, or in our personal fellowships, as we take each other out for coffee or have each other around for a meal or just hang out, do not neglect the gathering of God's people. That's number four. And finally, number five. You're glad we got to the end. I don't have to do that anymore. Don't I? <laughs> Number five, encourage each other. Verse 25 again, let's not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. The day he's talking about is the day when the Lord Jesus Christ returns to gather his people. Jesus is coming back. I don't know when, in fact you can't know, but what you can know is that it's one day closer than it was yesterday and you're one day closer to meeting him anyway, uh, even if he doesn't come back in your lifetime. And that day is going to be marvellous and so we're to encourage each other to keep going and keep helping each other and encouraging each other so that we'll all make it together safe and sound. Persevering in our hope and trust and love of Jesus. Encouraging each other isn't just saying, Hey, you're looking good today, you know, and stuff and uh top of the morning to you. Uh or I got good and target uh at eight o'clock church this morning from our Danish uh friend. Uh that's that that that's nice and lovely and warm. But encouraging each other is is giving each other strength for the Christian journey and the fight and You know, to make it to the end, building each other up, giving each other the strength we need, praying with each other. These are the best things you can do. They're things that flow straight out of belonging to Jesus. Because we've got access to God, because we have confidence, because we're saved, draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance. Hold unswervingly to Jesus, to your hope. Spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Don't give up meeting together as believers. In fact, encourage each other and all the more. In fact, do all of them all the more as we see the day when he comes to claim us and take us home getting closer. When we'll finally be with him physically in his presence, not just in spirit, but face to face. Father, thank you for your mercy and love that you have saved us, given us Jesus done all that's necessary. We pray that we might be those who draw near to you and flourish in our relationship with you. Help us to not uh, swerve from our hope, uh, but to uh, keep our eyes on the prize and help us to be in it together as your people, uh, spurring each other on, meeting together and encouraging each other that we might all make it uh, to that last day together. Trusting him and growing in our faith and understanding and love and service. Pray all these things in your name and for your glory. Amen.